0: So we're in week three, uh, looking at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And uh, this was originally going to be a four-week series, uh, but with our pastoral candidate weekend next week, uh, we've moved it to three, and so hold on to your seats today. Um, No, actually, uh, chapter four, uh, a bulk of chapter four... Um, it's not that it's throwaway or nonsense or anything like that. It just contains a lot of greetings and reminders about some things he's already said. So we're going to glaze over a little bit of that. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of our ta- most of our time in chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, go ahead and open them to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, but this series, uh, Letters from the Pen, these, these are letters that um, Paul wrote while he was in chains. And so last summer, we started in Philippians, that's his uh, letter to the church in Philippi, and then we moved on in September, and we looked at his letter to a person by the name of Philemon, that's, uh, although it's, it's not a church, but a church actually met in his home, that's something that we discovered, um, and what's interesting is the church that met in his home was the church at Colossae, um, and so this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians was all about how to have joy in the midst of trial. Joy no matter what happens in our world. Joy that only comes from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It only comes from Him. It's not manufactured. It's not happiness. It's a joy that comes from Him. And then he wrote to Philemon uh, to encourage him to accept um, their now brother, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave of Philemon's. And he had met Paul uh, in his running away. And then he had met Christ because he met Paul. And uh, so Paul was sending Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter in hand saying, please accept him back now as a brother. And if there's anything that he's done, um, if you've lost money or whatever in this, he said, I will repay it. Just accept him back now as a brother. And so that was the second letter. Now, later this year sometime, we'll look at his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. Uh, But for right now, uh, we are looking, finishing up the letter to the Colossians. Church. Uh, many of Paul's writings, including these these letters, were were meant to combat false teaching uh, in many cases that was creeping into these churches, these young baby churches that, um, you know, they had heard the gospel and they had accepted it and they were loving each other and they were doing great things together as a body, um, but there were these false teachers that kind of followed in and, and were starting to say things like, well, yeah, but, you know, Jesus, um, he, he's not really God, He's he's just a creature. He, he, He was created in this line of creatures that have just created each other. And over time, the universe was made. And I mean, there's some kind of crazy false teaching starting to happen. And so in chapter one, Paul spent a ton of time correcting that idea and saying, no, 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 Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. He is God. There's no two ways about it. That, that's wrong. And so he gives 10 evidences of the fact that Jesus is Christ overall. And remember, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title, the Messiah, the Deliverer. Um, and then um, even at Christmas time, we talk about Emmanuel. That's just who he is. He's God with us. So sometimes we can get those names mixed up. But Jesus, the Christ, is probably a more accurate way to say that. Um, so he was present at creation. He, he actually is responsible for creation. There are multiple places in, in our Bibles that tell us that. And uh, Paul wanted to make sure that he was above all things because he was there first and he created all things. So don't get confused by that, church. And I say that to you as well today. In chapter 2, he, he addressed two extremes. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about this idea of philosophy, this head, um, in, intellect side, and then the other extreme being ritual, um, heart, or um, tradition, and how you go too far in any one of these directions and you forget and you become detached from the head Who Paul said is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And if you place too much emphasis on philosophy and and the you know just the rules of nature, and, and you go too far that way, or you hold too far to tradition or your ritual or your heart, you know, your emotion, you go too far that way, you're getting too far away from the fact that Christ is holding it all together. He is the head. And so with that in mind, we're going to move on to finish out the letter here today. And I'm going to read it for you. Uh, The remainder of our passage we're going to use starts in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And just sit back. We're going to read the whole passage through uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray. God, I pray that the reading and the discussion of your word here today will be powerful That it will cut us to our hearts, that it will do what it's designed to do, that it will change us in some way here today. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that your word would just dig in today, that they would understand it maybe for the first time what you have done for us and what our response should be to you. God, for those of us that have made that decision already, I pray that you would grow us today. And that as we move about this week, that you would help us to be a light in the darkness. And so God, we just pray this all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. So with everything we've learned so far, chapters 1 and 2, Paul actually is going to end his letter primarily with a bunch of application. And I love that. What do I do with this? You know, wasn't, Was this letter just for the church in Colossae? Or is there applicable stuff for us here today in 2020? And I would say that all of scripture is applicable one way or another. Uh, but today we're going to look at four very practical applications, four different areas that we are expected to apply this truth, remembering that Christ is over all. So the first thing that we're going to look at today, the first application, is something we're calling perspective. Perspective. Uh, this is our viewpoint. How do we see our world? What goes in to that? Okay. Uh, looking back at verse one, Paul says, "Since then you have been raised with Christ, so set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things." That's where our perspective needs to be. Paul says we should seek things that are heavenly. Set your mind on things above. Another good a good list of things, uh, and we can find them in lots of places. But I love Philippians four eight. Here's some heavenly things you can seek. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, those are the things you should think about. Seek the heavenly. Uh, this is a rem- another reminder that Paul is telling the church there and then through them us that we are not to only be focused on the things that we can see. The things that we can see. The things that are right in front of us. Those, those hard things in our life. Uh, even the good things. We shouldn't only focus on the things that we can see. We are to seek the heavenly. This was part of the false teaching that was creeping into this church back in this day. And Paul wanted to be crystal clear that God is on his throne God has not fallen asleep, God can still be trusted, and here are the things that you need to look after. You need to keep your eyes focused on him and the things that come from him. You might remember in chapter two, if you were here last week, that there's some symbolism that was talked about as it relates to baptism, the act of baptism. Um, And it's as if we are buried with Christ, And we die to our sins when we go under the water. It's a picture. That's all it is, is a picture. Um, And Paul says it again in this passage. You have died. You have already died. And your life is now in Christ. You're not the same as you used to be. Stop using that as an excuse. You died when you accepted him. And were made alive in him as well. He is your life, Paul says, He is your life. It's not just about what you can see in the here and now, but it's what is to come that matters. Seek the heavenly. The second thing Paul is saying here is that we should slay the earthly. Seek. Let me go back to it here. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, um, not on earthly things. So slay the earthly things. Uh, he goes on in, verse, uh, in the section, verse uh, 5 through 9. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And man, that sounds kind of violent, doesn't it? Put it to death, right? Put to death these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And, and most religious folk would say, Yeah! Those people who do those things, yeah, they, you know, they're the sinners uh, that are out there, and they need to repent. But then Paul um, kind of throws a little curveball, and he says, "Oh, there's another another list I'm going to give you here: um, anger, um, <laughs> rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Let me just tell you, there's a lot more things that could be on that list. Um, but he's he's teaching them." there's, you know, if you're going to start making lists, you better make a pretty complete list. And you better recognize that you also are a sinner, church. (laughs) Don't point fingers. That list could be so much longer. But, you know, we really like to go after that first list. And we don't like to focus on that second list. And I just spent a little time thinking this week, why? Why do we think that is? Why do we do that church? Why do we why do we point why don't we point the finger at things like anger or slander as much? I mean, are some sins worse than others? One lie. One time of losing your temper in a in an unrighteous way. One moment of rage is all it takes for you to be separated forever. From God, in the same way as one act of sexual immorality or murder. One sin is all it takes. We need to get our arms around that because we all are without hope apart from Jesus Christ. Every single person that's ever lived. And Paul says, You used to walk in these ways, but you died. You died when you accepted Christ. And you need to make sure, counting on strength from the Holy Spirit to help you do this, that these old ways are put to death because they have no place in your life as a follower of Jesus. None of them, any of the lists you can find in Scripture, none of those things have any place in our lives. Do we still do them? Yep. Yep. How many... Uh, I'm going to get to this in a minute. This is going to be really uncomfortable in a minute, okay? I'm just going to warn you. <laughs> but Christ has taken that old self and we have died and, and he, he's taken that old dead self and he's brought us back to life. He has made us brand new. Not just some scrubbed up version of what we used to be. He has made us new it is an important point um, that you can be a Christian and still struggle with sin. So here's the uncomfortableness. Who in this room still sins from time to time? Oh, you better raise your hands. Have <laughs> your hand in this building. <laughs> here's the thing we need to remember. When you accept Christ, you are not always immediately aware of every area in your life that needs to change. I hope that makes sense because when you accept Christ, you're, um, I think, at, at the core, what you have recognized is that you are without hope. You are condemned by the law. And, the, and you could never keep the law. And so Jesus, by keeping the law perfectly and dying to take our place, he has provided this way of salvation. And, and we recognize that. And in that moment, our lives are changed forever. We become his child. But the job isn't done as far as the things in our life that probably need tweaking. This is going to be something that happens throughout your life. Throughout your whole faith journey, you are going to be refined. Jesus talked about uh, the vine and the branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. Some branches are bearing fruit and he prunes them a little bit to make them even more fruitful. That's a refining. Some branches are dead and he cuts them off and he throws them in the fire. We're constantly being refined throughout our lives. And so this idea of perfection will never happen. You don't have to recognize every area of your life that might not be pleasing to God at that moment when you know you need him. But I'm going to guarantee you, after you make that decision, his spirit moves inside of you and he will make sure to address those areas for each of us individually. And so we need to hold on to that. It's a lifelong process once we've accepted Christ. And so Paul says, seek the heavenly, slay the earthly. And in verse 10 and 11, he says we should strengthen those things that are Christly or Christ-like. He says, do not lie to to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, being renewed constantly in the image of its creator. Again, Paul says, take off your old self, put on the new. That's not... That's not within our power to do on our own. I just want to make that clear. This old self that we used to be controlled us for so long that we then developed these habits, these automatic responses. You know, someone pushes us and we come fighting, right? It's an automatic thing. And for so long, our old self controlled those responses. Certain reflexes from certain stimuli... And this new creation now that God has formed is no longer controlled by those things. It's no longer helpless to make those changes where those habits have formed. We don't have to be slaves anymore to those automatic responses. No, now we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that will give us strength, will give us boldness, give us courage to make the right decisions. In fact, Paul in verse 11, I, I love this, he says, you know, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, and I think at that point the Greek church was probably cheering. That's right, it doesn't matter if we're Jews. We're Greeks, and that's fine. We can we can accept Christ too. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to be circumcised to be right with God. I'm sure they were excited, but then the next words show up, and it says, slave or free. Do you remember whose, whose house this... This church is meeting in uh, Philemon, right? And he had slaves, okay? And Paul had just written this letter about Onesimus and sent it back to Philemon, encouraged him to accept him as a brother. And and I just think there's probably others in this church who are in that same predicament and they might have stopped cheering so loudly in that moment uh, because they liked the arrangement the way that it was. But what we need to remember is that none of these labels... You can put any label you want in that list. None of those labels matter anymore. That's what Paul was saying, because Christ came to put an end to all division. All division should be gone. We need to stop putting up walls in our community so that we don't have to see those people or that group anymore. We don't have to exercise the love of Christ to them if we can't see them, right? So let's just keep putting up walls. no. We need to stop putting up walls. Do you know what else we need to stop doing? Man, you're going to be, you're going to get um, offended here. We need to stop sharing those awful Facebook posts. Good Lord, those posts that all they do is divide people. Man, it's crazy. They separate us from people, groups of people, people that need Jesus. But my Facebook feed is full of those posts, and I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I have to make sure that when I get angry in those moments, that it's righteously, because I just get angry when I see that stuff. It's terrible. Our perspective, the viewpoint by which we see our world, has to change. It has to change. We're new. We are a new creation. We're not that old person anymore. Put it to death. These areas, the heavenly, the earthly, the Christ like, these things are foundational to how we live, to how we see our community, to how we interact in a way that honors God in all that we do. The second area that we're going to look at of application is our principles. Or principles. I would have called this one Motives, except it didn't start with a P. So I called it Principles. <laughs> I like to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> in this section of the letter, Paul is going to describe uh, four quick areas uh, related to our motivation uh, behind why we choose to follow Christ. Uh, starting in verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And this is the grace that Christ shows to us. These, these, um, what do I to say? These attributes, these beautiful things: compassion, kindness, patience. Thank God, He's patient with us. His grace is offered to us and shown to us through those things. And Paul says, clothe yourself with those. Put them on. Your old self is dead, your new self is alive. Put some good clothes on it. The the things that Christ can give you, the things that will show the grace and the love of Christ to those in your communities and those you interact with. These attributes can only come from God. they're, They're also found in Galatians 5 the fruit of the Spirit. Um, these, These only come from God, as I said earlier. These are not things that we can somehow create in ourselves. We have to rely on the Spirit to do that for us. We need to remember, too, who Paul is writing this letter to because it makes a difference as you're reading it. Remember, he's writing it to the church, right? In his mind, these are believers, these are followers of Jesus, and he says to bear with one another, or, for, or bear with each other, and forgive one another. How much? How much? Oh, just as much as God bears with and forgives us. Just that much. And you might be sitting there, and you might say, "Wait a minute! Don't don't all Christians get along?" Someone might say, oh, right, you mean, like, from from denomination to denomination, right? Like, you know, well, we're non-denominational, and you know those people over at Calvary, Baptist, right? You mean, like, we don't get, like, we wouldn't get along, right? Or, uh, like, the people down the road at the Church of God uh, wouldn't, they wouldn't get along with, like, the charismatic church, right? That's what you're talking about. Well, sometimes, sometimes, but... You all well know by your reaction already that disagreement, hurt, lack of forgiveness, misunderstandings, downright arguments happen within individual churches too. And it shouldn't be that way. Paul says if you clothe yourself with these things, it will make a difference. He says the most important of any attribute you could ever hope to clothe yourself with, the most important is love. Paul says that love binds all the rest together. If you remember, I harp on it a lot, Matthew 22, uh, 37 through 40, it talks about the the greatest and the second greatest commandment. Uh, Love God and love others. And uh, so what Paul, and, and it says if you can do that, All of the other laws you could ever hope to follow, all the other rules that are out there, they'll all be taken care of if you can do those two things. And Paul says love binds all of these together. Loving people is going to put you in a better position to show forgiveness. Approaching people first with love is going to help you bear with them through life's up and downs. If you start from a place of love we will have so many less arguments, so many less disagreements, so much less people stomping out of a church service, which I haven't seen happen, so that's good, Um, but so many less negative emails and anonymous notes to pastors during the week. If we approach with love, all these other things will just be bound together with it. So I just want to say when... When you're not sure someone deserves it, just look at how much grace God has extended to you. How much he has forgiven you. To what lengths he has gone in order to show you love. And then do likewise. So we should be motivated by God's grace. The next part of our motivation or our principles is the peace of Christ. In verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This peace, again, only comes from Christ. When you've done everything in your power to to yield yourself to him, to being clothed in these fruits of the Spirit, and you're not holding grudges or, or unwilling to forgive your brother or sister, you can experience an amazing amount of peace. Think of the peace. There's an old hymn that says, oh, the peace we often forfeit. Because we don't take things to God. We don't have our focus on him. We can experience that peace and and it can then drive us to thankfulness, Paul says. So grace and peace ought to motivate us. The third thing is the word of God. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. His message, his word, it shouldn't be strange to us. It shouldn't be all dusty when we come to church on Sunday. It should dwell inside of us. It should be part of us. And through our lives, we should become more and more familiar with it as we grow and as we walk with Christ. And it says when we are, it will help us to teach each other and admonish or warn one another about what is contained inside of it. And Paul says this leads to unity. Man, we need more unity. This leads to unity in it, and it results in singing all types of music because of the gratefulness that's in our hearts Again, Mara says it all the time. It doesn't matter if you can sing well. The main criteria for singing in this passage is that it comes out of your heart of gratitude. That's the key. What's in your heart? So his grace, his peace, his word should all be part of our principles, our motivation. The last area he talks about is uh, that we should be motivated by holding up his name. Verse 17 is a very common uh, passage. You might have memorized it as a child if you grew up in church. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And and later, at the end of this chapter, we'll see him reference the same idea. Paul says, whether you're at work, whether you're at school, home, uh, or anywhere else, display those fruit of the Spirit. Forgive each other and experience the peace of God. Get in the Word, teach and warn each other and sing all the while giving thanks to and lifting up his name. And so we've talked about our perspective needing to change. We, we've talked about our principles needing to change. The third area that Paul addresses is our personal relationships. See how I added that with a P? <laughs> I could have just said relationships, but I didn't. Oh man, I'm afraid of addressing this here today. Um, wives, submit. Submit. Husbands, love. Paul didn't address the wives first because they were the neediest. Sorry, guys. The gospel actually, in this day, that day and age, radically changed the position of women in the Roman world. It gave them new freedom. It gave them new stature. That they didn't have previously, and we shouldn't think of this idea. And I'm not going to go into a lot of depth here. Um, I'm just going to explain what Paul is saying in this letter. There's a greater um, discussion to be had. In fact, in Ephesians, and we'll see this in a minute, uh, he addresses the same type of thing. So we'll talk more about it when we do that. But this idea of submission isn't slavery. It's not oppression. Uh, This word actually comes from the military, um, and it it simply means to arrange under rank. Uh, And we need to remember the fact that one soldier might be a private, the other is a colonel. It doesn't mean one is necessarily better than the other one. It only means that they have different roles. They have different roles. In the same way, The fact that the woman is to submit to her husband doesn't suggest that the man is better than the woman. It only means that the man has the responsibility of leadership in the home. It's not dictatorship. It's loving leadership. In fact, uh, both the husband and the wife must be submitted to the Lord and to each other. So even though it just mentions that specifically to wives here, they must, both sexes much, must submit to God and to each other for the perfect relation not perfect relationship, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Never perfect, except mine. Where is my wife? Where is she? There she is. <laughs> Man, I gotta just read what I wrote here. Um, <laughs> it's a mutual respect. Under the lordship of Jesus. In fact, I mentioned in, in Ephesians, Paul gives a similar um, message there. And in this one, Ephesians 5.21, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there it is right there. That's, that's the precursor to any of these other things that Paul is saying. Um, this mutual love and this submission creates an atmosphere of growth in the home. That both the husband and the wife become all that God wants them to be. But Paul says specifically the husband has the responsibility of loving his wife. Again, the word used here is agape. This is uh, the self-sacrificing, this serving love that Christ shares with his church. That's the same type of love that us husbands are to have for our wives. Um, Again, back in Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave his all. He gave everything he had. He willingly died for it. That's the extent that husbands should be willing to love their wives. And Paul adds a special word of warning uh, back in Colossians. It says, and do not be harsh to them. Husbands need to be careful not to allow bitterness to take root in the home. It can can poison the marriage and it can give the enemy a foothold. No, the, the husband and wife must be open with each other. They must be honest with each other. Not hide their feelings. Don't lie to one another. Don't say everything's fine when it's not. Talk about it. Because a husband who truly loves his wife in that way and doesn't behave harshly or try to throw his weight around and try to domineer, that's what he should look like. In fact, Paul uh, further describes what love looks like in one of the most famous chapters of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the Love Chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily anchored, it keeps no records of wrong. That's what it looks like to love the way that God wants husbands and wives to love each other. And that's the best case scenario, and we should strive in our lives to be what God says is best. Paul continues to address more of the family dynamic here. He says, children, obey. Do I get an amen? Children, obey your parents and everything. Uh, We need to remember, you know, we were all children (laughs) at some point, right? You're not expected to obey your parents um, in the same way you were when you were in their house, okay? What Paul is talking to here is minor children, okay? Children obeying. Now, we ought to definitely respect our parents at all ages um, and honor them, but what he's speaking to here is children under the direction of their parents. Um, But children need to grow up. They need to become more and more independent, and that breaks my heart. <laughs> but this idea of obeying their parents is, is written specifically for minors. Now, as small children, right, it's critical that parents make pretty much all the decisions for them. But as they grow, right, freedom and independence starts to be more critical because they're not going to be children forever. They need to be productive members of society. They need to be functioning adults. Um, in fact, I recently told one of my boys, um, and he's running sound this morning, and I hope he doesn't cut my mic out while I'm t- telling this story. Um, <laughs> but we provide, as parents, we provide limitations for our children, right? We do that for two reasons. One of them is to protect them. One of them is to protect. The other one is to teach. It's to teach. So when um, my unnamed oldest son um, was, was small... We had to keep him away from the hot stove, right? You, you wouldn't let your child go near a hot stove. Um, and that you're putting a limitation on them at that moment to protect them. Now, it might be partially to teach, but that, that's going to be part of the process as you grow up. Um, you know what's amazing? Is he's at a point now where we can say, Hey, Isaac, how would you like to make dinner tonight? using the stove. How can he do that now? It's because he was taught early that you, you know, the stove is nothing to be fooled around with. You've got to be careful. It could hurt you. But over time, helping with mom, helping with dad, you, you know, you've learned how to use it properly. Um, there's a whole other application there for smartphones that I'm not going to go into this morning. But Paul also says to the fathers or the parents this isn 't just for fathers, but that's who he addresses here uh, that they are not to embitter, exasperate, or frustrate their children to the point of discouragement that doesn't mean letting letting them do everything they want because they 'll get frustrated with you for doing the right thing, but don't unnecessarily put so many limitations on them that they just get frustrated and they're locked in their bedroom. you know they can 't ever do anything kind of kind of a thing. be a parent, provide boundaries but encourage them to grow. That's what Paul is trying to say here. And Paul's not just talking about family relationships. Uh, he goes back to this example of slaves and masters. He says, Slaves, obey. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Um, and in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Really, at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is you are to no longer see yourself as an employee or boss, but consider yourself as a child of God. Don't work with your eyes on the clock, but with, with your eyes on Christ, because he is the one that you are serving. And remember, in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. And so our perspective needs to change. Our principles, our motives need to change. Our personal relationships need to change. The last area, really quickly, that needs to change is our purpose. Our purpose. And this I would have called mission if I was going with all M's. Uh, But I couldn't find M's for two of them, so I had to stick with the P. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Um, And I'm skipping through the verses here. uh, So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He hits on three major themes there. Prayer. Devote yourselves to it. Pray that doors will open for us and others to proclaim the message, number two, the mystery of Christ, the gospel, what he has done for us, who he is, what he's done, um, so that then evangelism can take place, that every opportunity we can share with somebody else what he has done. And he says, "Make sure your conversations are always full of grace." I love that. When I uh, he and he says, "Like salt," <laughs> I love that idea. It's like a delicious steak, you know, is made better by a little bit of salt. Uh, and it's the same thing with their fellowship. As they speak to each other and as they extend grace to each other, it'll just be that much more tasty, you know, that much better. And I mention in the uh, verses seven through eighteen of chapter four. Paul just sends some final greetings, some instructions for the reading of this letter. Also to another letter he sent to a neighbor church, Laodicea. They were supposed to swap letters at the end um, and read both of them. Uh, Laodicea's letter was not included in the canon of Scripture. Just in closing out the message today, I'd like you and myself to take a look at these four areas again and just ask yourself some questions. Okay. When it comes to your perspective, your viewpoint, are you focused on politics, making money, exercising your rights? Is that your main focus in life? Or are you seeking the heavenly and slaying the earthly and strengthening those things in your life that are Christ like? When it comes to your motivation, your principles, and your day to day life, again, are you motivated by the things in the world that you can see? Or is it the grace of God and and his peace that is extended to us, that are made known through his word, and with the end result of giving glory to his name, that motivates you more? What about your personal relationships? Do you act harshly or in an unloving way with your spouse or your children? Or do you do the bare minimum at your job, all the while bad-mouthing your boss, Or do you submit to God and your spouse and show the same kind of love that God shows you? Do you allow your children the room that they need to grow? Are you a a good employee that understands that actually, yeah, you're working for somebody in authority, but ultimately you're doing that with your eyes on God? You're trying to please him with how you act. And then your purpose or your mission. Do you see your purpose as just living your life the best way possible and getting as much as you can before you die? Or do you recognize that we are to be people of prayer? People who are focused on God's word. And people who are focused on that word having an effect on all the people that we come into contact with. Because based on who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we need to come to a place where we submit to the fact that Christ is truly over all of it. We play a very small role. And in fact, without his breath, we play no role at all. So anything that we do, anyone we come into contact with, we are to recognize our place and respond in appropriate ways based on what Christ has done for us. Let's pray.